This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at Zen Mountain Monastery. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of the Zen Center of New York City. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. I was reflecting how to introduce the topic this morning. I figured I'd start in a good place with the Buddha. That uh, in his lifetime, he looked around and he saw a mess. Uh, And that that mess came out of the actions of each one of us. And um, I think when we look around we can see the same thing. That basically, if we look at any level that we might divide reality up, uh, national, international, uh, local, corporate, religious, personal, what we see is, in Buddhist terms, greed, anger, and ignorance. A lot of aggression, which can go very forward and push into you, or can retreat backwards and create disharmony by retreat. And that aggression and resultant suffering is often obvious, but often not so obvious. So it's not just the overt actions that we as individuals do with our body, speech, and mind, uh, but collectively that we do each of us individually doing it, but acting as a cohesive whole to create societal uh, effects which affect and hurt people based on differences. Differences in skin color, gender, sexuality, and on from there. Tribes. It seems pretty endless. But the Buddha also noticed through his own practice and profound awakening that the cause of it was not inevitable, that there was a way to address it, and that first you had to look at yourself, that even though all these causes seem to be on multi-levels, there's only one cause, you and I. That's what it always comes down to. And you and I tend to live out of a separate sense of self, Is that the way it is? And so he suggested a path to examine to see if that separate sense of self is actually the way it is. And that separate sense of self or sense of self in anything we look at creates a problem because the fundamental reality, the fundamental encounter that the Buddha had as himself seeing into reality was that this is one wholeness manifesting individually in each thing. And you can't tease them apart. And when we live out of the perspective that we're apart from each other and each thing, sentient and insentient, then we do have permission internally to do whatever the heck we want to that other thing because it's not us. And yes, many of us would like to be nice to the other. But usually when it comes down to the other or to myself, well... We know where that's going to go. And so this is an ongoing story. And that story is self-perpetuating. And each 
action, thought, word that is harmful creates the next action, thought, word that is harmful. And away we go. And we do it through our lifetime, moment by moment. And that karma, that energy, so think of karma both as an action but also as an energy of that action, is perpetual. It keeps on giving. And if that karma is created from a place that is separate and harmful to other beings and yourself, then that's what you're giving and that's what you're receiving. And if it's holistic, if it encompasses the whole being, and manifests in you yourself, in your specific actions, then that karma is present in that way. So we've been studying um, in this ango um, a particular aspect of that teaching. And so for those of you who are new, um, this is Dharma encounter, as you've heard. And we have a Dharma encounter at the end of each session, each week-long meditation intensive during our three-month intensives, which are called Ango. We have two of them a year, and they historically go back to the time of the Buddha when the Sangha community would gather during the rainy season to uh, work with the teachers, work with the senior um, uh, monastics and lay people, and look at specific Dharma questions, address them, sometimes coming from the teachers, sometimes coming from the practitioners. And the responses could be very, very direct. Boom, direct. Or it could be more intellectual, or someplace in between, depending where the question was coming from and the capacity of the person asking the question. And so that tradition of Dharma encounter has continued in various ways through various schools of Buddhism to here, today. And so... I'll make a presentation. You're about to find out what that is. Surprise, surprise. Uh, it has something to do with karma. Um, and uh, I'll invite people who are participating in the Yango to come up. And uh, if you are on that chart at the back of the room, you're participating in the Yango. And also, because of the nature of what is about to be presented... I want to, in particular, invite Jukai students to come up. And also, I want to, in particular, invite Jukai students who have either never come up or rarely come up. We have a dedicated group of Jukai students and seniors who will come up at every opportunity. (laughs) And that is wonderful. But I'm going to ask you to step back today and give people, you know, the people who are in the back row usually, as opposed to the professionals who sit right here so they can get a line. Um, Been there, done that. Um, So give people who are a little more bashful an opportunity to to come forward. At the same time, it would be nice to have people who have never done this and are not Jakai students. So we would hope for a good mix of people from very experienced people who've taken Jakai, meaning taken up the precepts as, um, as the focus of their life, uh, as well as people who may be very, at the very beginning of practice um, and everything in between. Now, uh, Sirio, who is the chief disciple, ah, 
<laughs> will lead off, and he is in the enviable position of leading the Sangha. And it's a training position, and no kidding. And uh, he'll start it off, and it's also preparation for him, this training, because next month, at the conclusion of Ango, he'll be leading this. And so it's everything we do, training. Uh, so he'll start that off, and Seishin, I believe, will end it. Um, so the line is open. Oh, sorry. I didn't do offer. <laughs> Bring up whatever you want. So here's, here's the piece, and it's from Dogen's Refrain from Unwholesome Action, which we've been studying this ango. So Zuiyu of Tang Dynasty was governor of, of Hang province. He studied with Zen Master Daolin. One day Zuiyu said, what is the essential meaning of the Buddha Dharma? So this is coming at the end of the chapter on refrain from unwholesome action, in which Dogen examines what that means as well as doing wholesome action. And these are the two pure, two of the three pure precepts and implicit the third, uh, do wholesome action with others, um, which is the basis of the precepts. In other words, the basis of the moral and ethical moments of your life that you can investigate and live or not, and create the subsequent karma that comes out of that. And so um, it's central. In, in the beginning of this chapter, Dogen says, this is the essential teaching, right here. And so he's asked, uh, Zen Master Dowlin is asked, as we say, as we you, sorry, as we say, what is the essential meaning of the Buddha Dharma? And Dowlin says, refrain from unwholesome action, do wholesome action. Suiyu said, if that is so, a three-year-old child could say it. Dowlin said, a three-year-old child may may say this, but even an 80-year-old person cannot practice it. And Dogen says, even if a three-year-old child can say this, even an 80-year-old person cannot practice it. This means the words of the three-year-old child hit the mark. Thoroughly study these words. Even an 80-year-old person cannot practice it. Thoroughly investigate these words. The child's expression is entrusted to you. The old person's practice of the unattainable is entrusted to you. It is not entrusted to the old person. To understand, speak, and live in this way is the point of the Buddha Dharma. He thought, referring to Zuiyu, that Daolin presented the phrase in a merely intellectual way. Zuiyu had not heard and did not know that refrain from unwholesome action and do wholesome action are the teachings of the Buddha way which are thousands and myriads of years old and apply to now as well as then. He responded in the way he did because he was not standing in the Buddha Dharma and did not understand the Buddha Dharma. The real issue here, the real issue here to clarify life and death is the great matter of causes and effects in the Buddha house. 
So I'm going to suggest some questions, but you can bring up any question, hopefully related to this. How does what I just presented and that story, what is the essential meaning of the Buddha Dharma? Refrain from unwholesome action, do wholesome action. If that is so, a three-year-old child could say it. A three-year-old child may say it, but even an 80-year-old person cannot practice it. How does that relate to clarifying life and death? Does it relate? How do you understand refrain from unwholesome action? Do wholesome action. How do you understand that? So you said, if that is so, a three-year-old child could say it. How does a three-year-old child say it? The child's expression is entrusted to you. It is not entrusted to the child. How do you understand that? It's entrusted to you. How do you understand this trust that's been offered to you? Why can't an 80-year-old practice it? The old person's practice of the unattainable is entrusted to you. It is not entrusted to the old person. How do you understand this entrusting? And I I didn't make it clear. Why can't an 80-year-old person practice it? So these are suggestions to come up. Um, I've outlined who I'm hoping to come up so we can explore these questions. The line is open. This year you'll do three bows. Everyone else except the last person will do one bow. I hope we have some Jakai students there. Shosanshi. As a principle, it sounds easy to say, refrain from unwholesome action, do wholesome action. The thing is that even if intentions are good, sometimes in the medium, in the medium run or in the long run, what ones, what ones do with good intentions to create, to not to create suffering, might create suffering. A point or an example might be, for example, giving money to someone in the streets, a homeless person. And uh, sometimes we do that thinking that that's a wholesome action, that we are doing something good for that person. But even though the intention is good, we do not know what uh, that money is going to do, that person is going to do with that money. For example, also, a mother might think that uh, she's helping her child, for example, doing homework, or just as simple as holding him to uh, go up the stairs but uh, maybe she is uh, uh, blocking her de- his de- the development of the child be- with all that help that she is providing. Maria Montessori said once that one of the things that a good guide should do is not to give uh, useless help. So, in my life, uh, I 
frequently uh, are in the, is, in the frequently in the situation where I struggle with what's the right thing to do and how and how to how to approach the whole thing. One thing that I tell myself is that I will learn from the experience, and that may be uh, help me to get rid of guilty feelings. But in the end, I really do not know what's proper or improper. Well, I think you do know in terms of where your ability to affect, to have an effect is. The Buddha emphasized intent. So hopefully the intent is to help. But that intent from the, to help has to be based fundamentally in something. I mean, the world is full of people who intend to help. And in the name of that, I'm told, in the name of religion, more people have been killed in the last centuries than maybe any other cause. So it's not just enough to have good intent. What's missing from good intent? What's the difference between a do-gooder and someone who fundamentally is based in doing good arising out of insight or arising out of their practice or, or not even being a Buddhist? What's the difference? I don't know. I would like to know. <laughs> it's you. The difference is our sense of self. That's the difference. That when our intent, our stated intent, or our internal intent is to do good, but it comes from a self-perspective, then inevitably that goodness, whatever the long-term effect, is in a sense going to be contaminated by that self-ishness. So that's one perspective. Another perspective of what you're bringing up is that Who's in control here? What do you mean by that? How well do you do controlling outcomes? Oh, not at all. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so let's not waste too much time. We should study the outcomes of our actions. So there's an intelligence and a wisdom, as you said, that comes out of that. But a lot of times there isn't any intelligence or wisdom. That's just the way it comes out in that set of circumstances. You know, um, you can do the best you can with good intentions, coming as best you can from a selfless place. Because uh, my own experience is, could be there one or two times in my life I've come from an absolutely pure selfless place, but they are vastly outnumbered by some sense of self that I have to look at and, and be careful with and allow for. I have to tell you that... You, know, you do not convince me. I, I do or I don't? No, I, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't because you said it, this has to come out from a selfless position. <laughs> I read once, I don't know where, <laughs> that uh, the Dalai Lama said that the, the sense of self 
is not going to, we, we won't be able to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. We know that it exists, mm -hmm. and we will be aware of its existence and, and of its, uh, its uh, effects on us. Mm -hmm. But saying that uh, it has to come from a selfless position, especially with the introduction that you gave, mm -hmm. and, uh, saying that the state of the world, how is it? Mm -hmm. you can, one might cry the whole day in, in terms of the sense of what's going on in, in society in, with the planet. Uh, when is going one? When is one going to be selfless? Or, or, how is it that we are going to arrive at that state and and do wholesome actions and avoid that? It's not a state. It's not a state. It's not a mind state. When is one going to arrive? Right now. You see your mind. You see the thought. That's yourself. You let it go, and you act with the best intent that you can well. to help. The question is, do you see the thought? Do you see what the action is? Yeah. And there's also skillful means, which is a whole other thing. But I think we've covered a lot here. That, that's more convincing. <laughs> May your life go well. Thank you for the teaching. Sasanchi. Um... So it's taken me 19 years to come up here. Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations on your bar mitzvah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so unwholesome action versus wholesome action. Uh, so this ongo, um, you know, my, my work is in a school and, um, and in a classroom with students who are dysregulated. They get sent to me. And um, I'm the minority. And every day, I get taught. And so here I have this wonderful opportunity um, to have these teachings, to work with these every day. And also in the Ango, um, with my family, we're doing a plastic-free April, which is really hard. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, so I'm, I'm bathing in wholesome action, yet, as I told you last night, I've been avoiding something, uh, this ango, which is to sit and face it because it's overwhelming. And I don't want to sit. I mean, I want to sit, but I don't. It's like, what shit? How do I begin in, in this plastic everywhere? And, you know, my art practice taking pictures of plastic. And, and, and then, you know. Um, so let's deal with that. All right. <laughs> Begin here. May your life go well. That was a plastic mala. Shazanchi. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about um, the 80 year old who has not attained. And I. Um, I have a very specific example. Um, my, uh, my husband's grandmother was very angry and very cruel and, um, until the end of her life, and she lived to 102. <laughs> and I met her at 90, and I hung up on her at 98 on the phone. So it was a very intense 
interaction to be with her. I saw her rageful um, at me, at other people. Um, I saw her cruel to people who couldn't really defend themselves, including her aides. And I was so disappointed that she wasn't happy and wise at that age. And then I had to question why I thought age would bring that. Um, but I, I, was, I felt often with her that I had no um, room to move. I didn't feel that I had the strength. I was 55 years younger to hold her accountable for things that she said to me or other people. And yet I knew that they were wrong. And so I felt that at the time I was um, unwholesome in my interaction with her. I wasn't honest. I allowed her to give me gifts, give us money, you know, things like that. Allowed a transaction to happen when I didn't feel authentic in the relationship. And I don't, I'm not unsettled with that. Um, I feel sad about how she died, um, unhappy and angry and causing harm. And there was there was nothing to be done. It was, that was just the life that was ending. Do you think if you had responded to her in a different way, um, pointing out to her her limitations and her transgressions against other people, that that would have been a positive effect on her? You know, I hung up on her because she was screaming at me on the mm-hmm. phone because she was angry about something my husband had done. And afterwards, she said... You were very, very, very obstinate. <laughs> um, but I didn't think that was a bad thing, actually, because I felt like she heard me. Yeah. And she heard me stop the interaction. Yeah. Um, other times, I just didn't, I don't know, it wasn't my family. I didn't feel like I had the um, wherewithal to do it. Mm-hmm. I don't know how sh- she would have responded, but I feel like someone should have done it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I was the right person, but... Who would be the right person? Her kids. Her husband. Well, I don't know. Wh- why do you think they didn't do it? I think they didn't do it. But why? Oh, why do I think they didn't do it? I mean, so you don't want to do it? They're not going to do it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, she's not going to do it? Yeah. So where does that leave everybody? <laughs> They were scared, and also, you know, I think when people have, like, money or resources, Mm -hmm. people don't want to compromise their Mm -hmm. access to that, and Mm -hmm. so, you know, there was this limitation, but, I mean, she had this this aid that she was so cruel to that it was wrong, you know, it was just wrong, so I, maybe... So, you know, the, the good and evil part is sometimes hard to parse out because we're in the relative world. And there's an effect from any action you might take. And as we just talked about, we don't know the outcome. And so your job is with hopefully the best of intent, which it isn't clear to me that was going on there. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. You can decide that. You're going to take an action that's most likely in your judgment, in your judgment, to benefit her and to benefit you. Now, from the bodhisattva perspective, benefiting her would come first. Yet, you also have to treasure yourself. You can't benefit her at a sacrifice, a significant sacrifice to your own well-being and honor, 
unless you've made that decision, that clear decision to do that, that in this case, this is going to hurt for me, but I need to do that. So what I'm pointing at is that you're responsible for your decisions. And whatever your decision is, hopefully will come out of the, uh, a care for the benefit of everybody involved. And so what does that mean in real life? It means in real life, when you make these decisions, probably there's going to be some harm to everybody involved. That's tough. That's, I don't mean that's tough. I mean, that's difficult. That is really difficult. I don't even want to believe that. I want to believe that there's some right response, and then everything will fall into place, and everybody will be happy. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I... Yeah, I know what you mean. Is that your experience of reality? No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It sucks, though, because... But, but look at it from a, from a deeper perspective. She is in you. You are in her. What you do affects her. What she does affects you. Look at the effect. Here we are. She's gone. And here's the effect. And people say karma doesn't go back in time. Of course it goes back in time. It's forward and back. And so, you know, the fairy godmother with the wand is not coming along anytime soon. But you are. You are that fairy godmother. You have the wand. You have the power. And that power is yours to make a decision. And whatever decision you make, please be responsible for. Now, you made decisions, so own them. This is not the end of the world, meaning you're going to make decisions, and some decisions won't be perfect in terms of not harming people. Anyone, you know, if you work in the, in the professional world of healthcare, you know that you're dealing with statistics when you're going to kill somebody or harm somebody. I know when I operated on people that a small but real percentage, very small, very, very small, but real percentage of people would have their lives ruined for me operating on them. And the other 99.9% I have no memory of. <laughs> you know. So that's good that you attend to this and that you study this. But, it's, but what kind of attention to this and study of this is helpful to you? So what's the karma of that? Of, of carrying um, a dream that we're all going to live happily ever after. Look around. We're not going to live all happily ever after. And you have enormous power. You had enormous power then, but those were the circumstances and those were the decisions you made. I'll bet, I'll bet that if this happened again now, you would have a very different perspective. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, may your life go well. Thank you for your teaching. So I have, a, I have a question. I have a student in my program who's selling meth. And it doesn't matter how many apples I feed the donkey. He's not coming around. Nobody else sees him. Nobody else knows him. He's going down the drain. What do I got to beat him with? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, why do you want to beat him? It, I can ply him with sweets. I can say, here's goals, here's opportunities, here's this. He doesn't want it. He doesn't want it. How do, I, how do I save his life? And the only way I can think is if he's a donkey and I can't get him to get to the water with an apple, I've got to hit him with something. Do you really think that would work? The other side hasn't worked. Well, that's not an answer. Do you really think it'll work? 
hope that if I can, I don't want to create more pain, but I hope if I can... Uh, what did you just say? I don't want to create more pain. Okay. Okay. So what's crucial is to, within the context of trying to help him, to understand what your power is and what your permission is. What's your permission in this situation? I don't know. Nope, I don't have non-permission. Nope, no parents are going to come yell at me. Sounds like your permission is zero. He has no interest in what you're selling. So what are we talking about here? What can you do? If his interest is zero, what can you do? I have to do something. Okay, but what can you do? Can you be, you, I can be there for him. I can provide a safe space. I can be patient and wait for him to come around to it. But I so think like it's going to be too late. Then what? So he's in prison. He kills somebody. He gets wait, shot. Wait, 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 wait. Let's hold on. Right now he's in your class. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what is, what is your question about? Is it about controlling the outcomes and satisfying something in you that you... Where's that fairy godmother? You know. That's, the Buddha didn't say, I look around and I see life and all I see is fairy godmothers. And that's an insult to fairy godmothers. He said, I see suffering. You see suffering. Now what are you going to do about it? You do the best you can and you let go of the outcome because you're not in control of the outcome. You know you're not in control of the outcome. So, you know, from another more subtle perspective, what are your questions about? Are they about him? No, they're about me wanting to control the outcome. May your life go well. Thank you for your teaching. It's okay, just one. Sorry. That's all right. You asked for it. Here I am. <laughs> Good for you. Thank I'm you. Nervous. Me too. So, so Sanchi, <clears throat> my understanding of the fascicle that we're studying this ago, to put it simply, is to be kind. Even if the whole world is going to shite, be kind. Now, <clears throat> It's my experience, but I've only been I've only been coming here for two years, that I'm operating on kind of a faith. Faith that my Zazen is in some small way helping what's going on out there. So <clears throat> that's to put it simply, that's my understanding of, of the fascicle. It's just to be kind. So what does it mean to be kind? I got a great answer, I think. <laughs> so what I do and what I've really been working on this ongo is, is after the realization that it, everything is interconnected, I had sort of an aha moment a while ago. So, I think of them and think of that part of the person that is like me, beyond the construct, 
beyond the construct of old, of color, of sexual preference. There is something that I'm deeply connected with inside of you, inside of Shugan, inside of Hojin, and this is why I keep coming back. I, I, I might not necessarily know what that is, so my approach to, to people is to connect with that side of them that is like me. I know it's there. Maybe there's a name for it. I don't know what that name is. At least not yet. I'm not in formal training yet. But So the person you're trying to connect with turns to you and says, get lost, and if you don't, I'm going to shoot you. Where's your kindness? That person may be the most important person in the world. But where's your kindness? Is it in a feeling? No, it's in an action. What's the action? When I silently bow to that person, because I've had that experience. But what do you actually do? That's in your mind, but what, what's the action? What's the kind action? Smiling. Really? Um, yeah. I, 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 grew up in, I, I grew up in Brooklyn. I've been in that situation. Right. My daughter lives in Brooklyn. It's not, yeah. it's, it's not a very... She lives in Brooklyn. Too, yeah, it's and not if I Brooklyn. would smile... Right. They would shoot me. You fucking wise ass. In those days, it was knives. Right. They would have stabbed me. Sure. But perhaps that would be my karma to take that bullet. Well. Right? Wrong. How is that wrong? Well, what's wrong is the smiling. It's inauthentic. It's unskillful. Let's put it that way. Okay, unskillful. Yeah, I would suggest... For a two-year practitioner, I, I mean, for me, smiling works now. It might not work ten but years But smiling is, is not a recipe for all situations. Correct. I, I would agree. Yeah. So, and, and this comes back to what is kindness. So kindness is a word, but it represents a concept. So how do you understand what it means to be kind in all circumstances? All circumstances. By going beyond. What does that mean? Going beyond what I, what I perceive as going beyond myself. Going but, but what's your basis for going beyond yourself? You can go beyond yourself and shoot people. My basis, currently my basis, I, I, it runs on faith. Okay. I don't necessarily know. I, I, I know that I've had some pretty uh, and, wild... And, um, Things have happened during Zazen that mm -hmm. may or may not be profound. I don't know. Maybe we can talk about that at lunch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what do you have faith in? I have ultimately, and this is hard for me to say, I have faith in taking the cross-legged position like Shakyamuni Buddha did 2,500, five years ago. Right now, brother, that's all I can operate on. That's plenty. That's plenty. Keep operating on that. And it will lead you to a clear understanding of what you can rest that faith on. May your life go well. Thank you for your teaching. So, so Sanchi... Um, By the way, that is a position, not a name. I mean, it's the name of the position. 
It's not my name. For these few minutes, it is my name. Uh, so I listened to your introduction, and I know the Buddha wanted, no, he understood suffering. But I sometimes think about why do we emphasize always the unwholesome, the suffering, because I know it even in my mind, you know, when I'm sitting and then I'm reinforcing the negative things. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I love negative things. And I sometimes, but there's so much beauty around, you know, mm -hmm. there's so much kindness around too. So it's. It, okay. So my question is why do we always emphasize uh, uh, suffering? And I'm, I don't want to be naive, right? Mm -hmm. We have to see suffering. Anyway. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, why don't you lean back and relax? <laughs> you're making me nervous that you're going to hurt your back. <laughs> the Buddhist perspective on suffering was not that that's all there is, but that that's all there is from a certain perspective. What's that perspective? In one word. I don't understand. Me. Oh, okay. You know, if that's your centering point, and that's all there is in your life, essentially, and, I, in, and covering that up with thoughts and words that seem to extend that to others, but it only rests in me, then that's what you get, a sense of distance from, both from your own life and from everything else. So he was just looking around and seeing that, seeing it in himself, seeing it in others, and noting the relationship that the effect had. Now, suppose he had looked around and said, well, there's also, it's a beautiful spring morning, a little cloudy, but the trees are trying to burst into bloom, and, um, and it's wonderful, and all that is true, and I love slightly rainy April days, and uh, now go sit, because that's what I see. <laughs> How would that have helped the suffering? Well, in the long-term, big picture, of course it does. When you understand the wholesome action, then you can is give anyone, that wholesome action is to anyone, others. You know, I, I think that smiling, what he just said, mm -hmm. there is something to that. Of course uh, and, there's something to and it. And if I always go through Brooklyn and think someone attacks me, it clouds my mind. Yeah. And... Um, I see it in the classroom, you know, by myself. I always emphasize the environmental destruction and the negative. And, uh, so you can emphasize that if you do that by turning it also to the positive. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. That's what so the name do. of this fascicle, although he names it from the perspective of avoid doing evil or, or refrain from doing evil, he's also saying do good. So there's two sides to that. And so there's always two sides. Now, in terms of you and your personal relationship, people come to practice for many, many, many reasons, some deeply relating to suffering, some not. Some can't articulate why they're practicing. Some come to practice with a joyful heart and an appreciation for the, all of the phenomena of life. So we have to be careful of that. We have to be careful of not self-conditioning. But I was wondering, because sometimes the kids, 
they can easily see the um, the beauty. You know, they 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 can uh, they can. They don't have that cloud yet of a long life of negative experience and reinforcing the suffering. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, so not quite. Huh? Not quite. I don't fully agree with you. I mean, I live with three grandkids, intimately I live with them. They're three very, very different people. Mm-hmm. And they have three very, they came into this world with three very different personalities. Mm-hmm. And, um, and one may be joyful, and one may be locked in their own neurosis. Mm-hmm. And where'd that come from? Well, I can say karma, but don't know that that means much. Mm-hmm. Um, when he's talking of a three-year-old, he's not saying the three-year-old is, is innocent of, you know, is an innocent babe, and as they grow up, they'll accumulate conditioning and mm-hmm. do evil things. Uh, the three-year-old is ignorant, and yet he's saying something about the three-year-old. Mm-hmm. What is he saying about the three-year-old? Well, he's saying the three-year-old is manifesting the Dharma. But why not the 80-year-old? Well, that's, what, that's the question, isn't it? But he doesn't say the 80-year-old is not manifesting the Dharma. That is not his words. He says, why can't an 80-year-old practice it? That's important. The wording here is important. He says, a three-year-old can say it, actually can't avoid saying it, but an 80-year-old can't practice it. Any ideas? Why can't an 80-year-old practice it? Well, intellectually, even if I approach well, it like whatever that, you is, got. I still think that then the karma of the long life Affect your practice. No? no, no, forget it. Okay. <laughs> well, think, think on that a little bit. May your life go well. That's great teaching. Shoshansi, is that okay? Yep. Um, a three year old can say it, but even an eight year old cannot practice it or cannot do it. No. Didn't say can't do it. Say cannot practice. Cannot it. practice it. Okay. So my understanding is that a three-year-old can say it because it's part of our true nature. And if an infant could speak, they could say it too. How does a three-year-old say it? They know what's right. But no, 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 no. How does a three-year-old say it? By how they behave and playing with others and and being kind and knowing what wholesome action is. We don't know what wholesome action is. Trust me on this. <laughs> I, I take my eye off the three-year-old. The door is open and both dogs are gone. And that is not a good situation. <laughs> I only have one grandchild. <laughs> and I think she knows kindness in terms of playing with others. Sure, but that's not what Dogan is talking about okay. here. Can I move on to the eight-year-old? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know. Well, let me go back to the okay. three-year-old child. I said previously that the three-year-old can't avoid 
saying it? What, what is being pointed at here? Can't avoid saying it. Cannot avoid it. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, you know what the Buddha said when he woke up? When he had, had his awakening? Some equivalent of what he said? So, he touched the ground and said, I and all the myriad things who have gained enlightenment have become awakened. Yeah. Didn't he say, I and all myriad things except a three-year-old? <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> right. Neither do I. So think about that a bit. Okay. All right. Now, let's get on to the uh, 80-year-old. Okay. Uh, so I guess how I think about this or just, uh, is that a three-year-old can say it. Um, but most three-year-olds still live at home in a sheltered environment. Mm-hmm. And how you started the talk was just describing the mess we're in all the different forces that we're facing. And I think of those as like headwinds. So a grizzled 80-year-old who's living life out in the world, well, I'm 20 years old. Um, They know that you can't sail directly into the wind. They know that even though wholesome action may be completely opposite of what we're experiencing in the world, you can't sail directly in the wind. You need to sail at an angle. And that takes discernment and wisdom to know how to work with the forces that we're dealing with. Um, Because a three-year-old may want to say, well, pull some action straight ahead, but if you try to go straight ahead, it's futile. So it takes wisdom and discernment to know how to work with what you're being presented with in a skillful way. So Dogen says in his translation, why can't an 80-year-old practice it? What, What is it? Okay, I would, my best shot is it is it being straight ahead. That's where I want to go. Okay. I can't go straight ahead with what I'm facing. I need to go at an angle, and once I kind of see what the effects of my actions are, I might tap back the other way. So in this, it says, hold on one second. The old person's practice of the unattainable is entrusted to you. So what is, do you think that's pointing at? It's unattainable. So now, why can't the 80-year-old practice it? Why can't they practice it, or why can't they attain it? It doesn't say attain. He says he, the question is, why can't he practice it? An 80-year-old cannot practice it. I don't know. So what's unattainable? What's fundamentally, within this practice, unattainable? From your perspective? My ideal of perfection, I guess. Okay, I'm going to translate that. What you cannot attain is enlightenment. Okay. Are you with me? Yes. I hope I shocked a few people, but I don't know if I did. Yeah. Why can't you attain it? Because I'm, I'm in this body, I'm alive, I'm a human being, I'm... Yeah, but human beings have realized themselves throughout history, including the Buddha and many people. Then I can. You can? If the Buddha did. <laughs> so this is worth... Isn't that what he taught? He, didn't, he taught it, but from a very specific perspective of that you. What did Dogen say about the self? No self. Well, he said, you know, this almost has become a cliche, to study the Buddha ways to study the self. 
So, so say the line about forgetting to the self. Do you know the line? Yeah. Say, the better way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. And what's the next line? And to forget the self is to be realized by myriad things. So how could an 80-year-old practice attain it? Because they're an 80-year-old. They identify themselves as an 80-year-old. That's right. That's right. And that's clear to you, I think. Yeah, got it. Yeah. But there's more work to be done there. I've got 20 years. No, you don't. I know. You really don't. Right. May your life go well. Yeah, thank you. Great teaching. So, Zhang um, I'm much closer to 80 than I am 3. And uh, I had... Mm, let me think about that. <laughs> uh, there are people in my life who would probably question that statement, yes. Um, <laughs> to, to pick up where you just left off, I think to um, the idea that I could attain enlightenment is not accurate because that would mean it was somehow separate from me, that I lacked it and therefore I attained it, as opposed to somehow realizing for myself that there is no separation. <laughs> Go on. Um, and I... Maybe this is really far afield, but um, this is something that happened to me during Sashen. Um, and it's the first time this has happened to me. The bell was struck um, to signal the beginning of Zazen. And it was as though the tinnitus in my ears had stopped. The tinnitus of me constantly talking to myself was absent. It was gone. There was, there was literally no separation between me and the sound of the bell. Nothing else. And that, to me, said amazing things are possible. That after all of these years, if I could experience that, come to that realization that I can that I'm I, I, I'm free to allow that to happen can I ask you a question yes. you've practiced a long time in a dedicated way you've supported many people in practice so what changed what happened that this Experience could occur, and that you saw something you hadn't seen before. Part of it was just the practice, the the fact that I'm here. But you were practicing. You had been practicing for years. Perhaps it's that I stopped trying so hard. Okay, I'm just curious. Well, I am too because (laughs) I've been at this for a very, very long time, Mm -hmm. and. Um, and at time people, teachers question me, why would you put yourself through what mm-hmm. you're putting yourself through? Um, and it's because with all my heart, I believe this is the only place I belong. Mm-hmm. Well, that says a lot. Uh, we've spoken about what can motivate people suffering, 
and faith. And faith has come up several times. And uh, a fundamental and deep faith is the basis of practice. And so, please keep going. Please honor yourself that way. Thank you. May your life go well. Thank you for your teaching. Satchi. As a part of me that thinks, oh, we should have ended on that note. <laughs> um, I, I, um, I looked into uh, what was the difficulty in these three months of being the Shuso. And uh, yes, there is this fear of regret. Like I've experienced regret. And um, there was once a practitioner, um, she's not with us anymore, but she said once in an open sozan, regret is not for pansies. <laughs> and I, <laughs> that stuck with me. I was like, yep, it's not. And um, um, I can see that the hesitancy of acting um, causes harm too. So I find myself in this um, bind. And it has, you pointed it out already, to do with um, control, with the wish to control. And um, this... um, Well, as we just heard, not letting go. How do you practice fear? Having it completely. Do you really believe that? At this point, yes. Thank it's you. It's just not always. Yeah. Th- um, thank you for your practice. <laughs> At this point, yes, she said. Thank you. I think there's a couple of things I want to point at. Uh, One is what just happened. At this point, she can be her fear. Implicit in that, as at previous point, she could not. And that's why this is a practice. We're never stuck unless we stick ourselves. And that's worth consideration. Um, Egan, who was up just before then, was asked that he had practiced for years being in a particular place, so to speak, and yet something has opened for him in a small but real way after years. After years of persistence, after years of practice. And so things can and do change. But we have to be sensitive to that, to when we may be invited to practice in a more responsible way for ourselves, to go deeper, so to speak. And if so, how? We just can't go deeper. We can't hit ourselves with the Kiyosako and say, go deeper. So we have to be responsible for our practice. We have to look closely at our practice without getting obsessive about it, because the other side of that is we can measure every, every thought of every breath and saying, am I doing it right? I must be doing it wrong. And so that's where teachers and sangha and dharma can help keep us in the middle of the road, so to speak. And that's important. And 
I think sometimes students can both take too much responsibility on their own and not relate to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha in the specifics of how to get help, particularly to their teacher, if they have a teacher. Uh, and on the other hand, they can relate too much. And we don't have to accept, and you know, to me this has been crucial in my own practice, I don't have to accept that my deeply conditioned way of being is fundamentally the way I am and can never be changed. There are aspects, I don't look at it as personality, I look at it as energy. So I know I have a certain energy in this life. And that energy can be used to promote evil, and I've done that, and to the best of my ability to practice good, and I've tried to do that. And it's not one or the other, certainly. It's a practice. So if we, we talked a lot about suffering, and in particular, that if our habit is to look at suffering as oppressive and trapping to me, then we have to look at that as a way to enter the Dharma, that that tendency, that conditioning, we have to be responsible for. And if this is what I do, I get depressed and overwhelmed every time I see think about the world, then we have to take action. It was interesting, Aho, my wife, recently went to the doctor, and she's her whole life, um, she's as old as I am, she's pretty old, um, she's had low blood pressure, and took the, her blood pressure, and it was ridiculously high. And he took it again, and a few days took it again, and she went home, and she said, this does not make sense. What am I doing to create my, my acquired condition? And she shut off the TV. <laughs> and you know what she was watching. And her blood pressure became normal. <laughs> and her cursing minimized, became a lot less. So this is our practice. I mean, that's a wonderful and simple example of when we're trapped in a cycle where we recognize that we get caught in depression or fear or anger, um, it's worth examining. It's worth looking at that if this is a deeply embedded way of being because it's not helping you and it prevents you from helping others to a certain extent. And we can just kind of throw up our hands and say it's overwhelming, it's hopeless. But it's never hopeless. It's never hopeless. In terms of the meth seller that someone mentioned, and meth sellers are almost always meth addicts, the thought that came up, I didn't articulate it, is that from my perspective in trying to help people, even though there may be no power, no permission, no relationship other than there's no relationship, even though we're in each other's presence, My sense of the Dharma is never, ever, 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 ever give up on trying to help myself and others. Now, I can error in that, and I do, but thank you, Winston. Never, ever, ever give up. Thank you.
Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about the monastery's programs, weekend retreats, and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org.